People think when they're working and they're attempting to multitask, they're getting more done. But studies show they're not. They're getting less done. Welcome to The One You Feed. Throughout time, great thinkers have recognized the importance of the thoughts we have. Quotes like, garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you think, ring true. And yet, for many of us, our thoughts don't strengthen or empower us. We tend toward negativity, self-pity, jealousy, or fear. We see what we don't have instead of what we do. We think things that hold us back and dampen our spirit. But it's not just about thinking. Our actions matter. It takes conscious, consistent, and creative effort to make a life worth living. This podcast is about how other people keep themselves moving in the right direction, how they feed their good wolf. Being active is more important than ever, and that's why I am excited to introduce On, perhaps the best kept secret in the running world. I love these shoes. I have been buying them for four years, and I don't buy anything else. They were founded in 2010 in Zurich, Switzerland, and it's the fastest growing running brand globally. Their philosophy is that you should run how you were born to run. Instead of correcting your movement, on shoes react to your individual running motion. As I said, I love these shoes. I use them for trail running, for all uh, running on the streets, and just day-to-day wear. They are amazing. And on is offering our listeners an exclusive offer. Try the shoes or gear for up to 30 days commitment-free. Head to on-running.com slash feed and pick your favorite shoes and apparel items. Apply the code TRYONFEED at checkout to test your new products for 30 days. Love them, keep them. Not convinced? Send them back for a full refund. That's on-running.com slash feed and the promo code is TRYONFEED. Thanks for joining us. Our guest on this episode is Dr. Daniel Levitin, an award-winning scientist, musician, author, and record producer. He's the author of three consecutive number one best-selling books, This Is Your Brain on Music, The World in Six Songs, and The Organized Mind. He's also the James McGill Professor of Psychology and Behavioral Neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal, where he runs the Laboratory for Music Cognition, Perception, and Expertise. Dr. Daniel Levitin earned his B.A. in Cognitive Psychology and Cognitive Science at Stanford University and went on to earn his Ph.D. in Psychology from the University of Oregon. His newest book is Weaponized Lies, How to Think Critically in the Post-Truth Era. If you value the content we put out each week, then we need your help. As the show has grown, so have our expenses and time commitment. Go to oneufeed.net slash support and make a monthly donation. Our goal is to get to 5% of our listeners supporting the show. Please be part of the 5% that make a contribution and allow us to keep putting out these interviews and ideas. We really need your help to make the show sustainable and long-lasting. Again, that's oneufeed.net slash support. Thank you in advance for your help. Hi, Daniel. Welcome to the show. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, very excited to have you on. You have written a number of different books. I think all of them bestsellers. 
a lot of different topics, music, which we're going to get into because I love. You've talked about how to organize our mind in a time of information overload, which is something we end up talking about a lot. And your latest book is called Weaponized Lies, How to Think Critically in the Post-Truth Era. And uh, we'll get into all that here in a minute, but let's start like we usually do with the parable. There's a grandfather who's talking with his grandson. He says, in life, there are two wolves inside of us that are always at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness and bravery and love. And the other is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed and hatred and fear. And the grandson stops and he thinks about it for a second and he looks up at his grandfather and he says, well, grandfather, which one wins? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. So I'd like to start off by asking you what that parable means to you in your life and in the work that you do. Well, it's an interesting way to begin a conversation. (laughs) I've been thinking a lot in the last few months about evidence-based thinking. And in some cases, I feel like I'm pushing a Sisyphean rock up a hill. Yeah, I I understand. Part of evidence-based thinking is trying to be precise with language and to look at the claims being made. And in this parable, the good wolf represents kindness, bravery, and love. I think we can all agree that these are desirable qualities. Uh, And the bad wolf represents greed, hatred, and fear. And I think that the way it's set up, we're meant to feel that these are undesirable qualities. But I'd like to challenge that assumption for a moment, or that, that view. And in the service of critical thinking. I think that hatred and fear are really important emotions. We should hate racism and tyrants, for example. Uh, If there was an organization that was trying to minimize hate crimes and stamp out hate, a bunch of people who hate hate, (laughs) I would join them. Uh, Hatred motivates us to resist. It motivates us and enables us to... um, to draw a line in the sand. We should fear poisonous snakes. We should fear airplanes flown by people who aren't licensed and and may not know what they're doing. So I like stories and I'm a storyteller. Um, I had a a short career as a stand-up comedian, which involves storytelling. But I think not to rain on your parable parade, but I think that some parables take a simplistic approach which squelches critical thinking. They try to reduce life to simple sayings that some people will invoke mindlessly. And I'm advocating for the opposite, mindfulness. That's a great take. Well, let's move on and talk about critical thinking. Your book called Weaponized Lies, How to Think Critically in the Post-Truth Era. It seems like every day that post-truth era becomes more and more upon us. And I, you know, we stay out of politics on this show in general, but I think that what you're talking about and what I really wrestle with is the idea that there are some things that do have a truth. You know, there is truth in, in certain things, you know, there are facts, not alternative facts, but real facts. And so your book is really about how to think critically through that. And I thought one place might be interesting to start because Your book is, I I loved it. It's really good. And I'd encourage anybody to look at it and read it and learn. 
a lot of it is not the sort of stuff you just summarize on a podcast really easily. There's some complexity there, which is the nature of critical thinking. But I thought that one way to sum up a lot of the things in the book would be to talk about the case study on autism being caused by vaccines. And in that one, you really pulled together four different common errors that we go into. So I thought that might be a really succinct way to show four common errors in thinking around one particular case study. So could you walk us through that? Yeah, and I might ask for your help in uh, the categorization of the four. Yep, absolutely. As, as we go, because uh, I, I didn't know this was going to be on the test. But uh, I certainly... Do you want uh, me to give you the four? Maybe we could start and, and you could rescue me when I start hanging myself. All right, fair enough. And I know that this is going to make some people mad. Yes. Some people have decided that um, the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine, causes autism, and they're suspicious of anyone who says otherwise. They assume that somebody who denies it uh, is on the take, is getting money from special interests, or has their head in the sand. And there's really a lot going on here. Um, one of the factors is there's a correlation that's undeniable between the administration of the vaccine and the diagnosis of autism. The correlation is very high. A, a relatively large number of people uh, who were diagnosed with autism previously had the vaccine. But I think that one of the categories that is uh, drawn out in this example is that correlation doesn't mean causation. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I, I had a cup of tea about 10 minutes ago, and then you called me on Skype. <laughs> every time no. I'm going to, it's going to happen every time, Dan, <laughs> all right. I, <laughs> be careful I with your tea. One, all right. I don't think one caused the other. And we have to be careful here in the case of the autism, uh, and vaccine link, it's unsafe to give vaccines prior to a certain age. The child's developing physiology and immune system isn't ready for vaccination. So we wait until the child's a certain age. Autism doesn't show up until a certain age because, by definition, it's a delay in normal development. So you have to wait to see if the child misses some developmental milestones. Now, it turns out that, in general, the shot is given some months before an autism diagnosis is possible. So uh, there's a third factor here, which is causing both, the timing of both. But it, and that's, you know, age, aging. But it doesn't mm -hmm. mean that one's causing the other. Another factor here is that um, when many people first heard about the link, they were able to pull up examples of people that they knew who had autism and who had the vaccine first. And the human brain is sort of configured that we focus on these positive, positive associations. This happened and this happened. Uh, we don't focus on all the, ne the negatives. So how many people do you know who got the vaccine who didn't get autism? Right. Well, it's it's an enormous number of people. I, I mean, there's there's no yeah. way that if you looked at both of those, you would conclude that the the vaccine caused autism. Another thing is there's belief perseverance. Uh, am I hitting the four so far? Yep, you're right on target. Once people make a claim to you or a proposal about something in the world that might be true, your brain starts trying to think of ways that that might be possible. You, you try to generate examples. Uh, that's one of the things the human brain does. And so you start thinking, oh, well, yeah, I guess so. There, there could be some chemical in the vaccines that causes autism. 
Uh, it could be that the drug companies don't want us to know this because they make so much money selling vaccinations. Problem is that once your mind starts engaging in that thinking and you adopt the belief before all the evidence is in, belief perseverance teaches us that it's very difficult to unseat or, or yeah. unhinge a belief once it's taken hold. It takes a very deliberate effort on all of us, on all of our parts, to, to adopt a new view. Very, very hard to do. You have to be aware that this bias exists. That one's so tricky because I think, like you said, we all have to be aware of it. But, you know, there are so many studies that just show that, you know, we will... Con- we will that we come up with a conclusion, we become emotionally attached to it, and then we look for the evidence to justify it. You know, the confirmation bias, I think, is a is a similar way to phrase it. There's two things at work here. One is that uh, we tend to make decisions emotionally rather than based on evidence. And that serves us well for some things like jumping out of the way of a snake in the grass. But it doesn't serve us well for other things. Any failed romantic relationship you had where after the fact, you can see the signs were there. You just ignored them because we're trying to not be rational or you let your emotions carry you. I'm not saying that emotions are bad. I'm just saying that when you have a decision to make, let the evidence trickle in. Wait until you've got a mound of evidence that weighs the teeter-totter of decision one way or the other, and then use your emotions to be joyful or angry or, you know, outraged about whatever it is that you've decided. Uh, so, So emotional decisions are the first part. And the other part is that we're all overloaded. This is an age of information overload. We're deluged with factoids and pseudo facts and science and pseudoscience. And um, Dan Gilbert uh, from Harvard and others have shown that when you're in a state like that, you just don't have the gumption the extra cycles to make a a sound decision. So you throw up your hands and you go with your gut to your detriment. Now, I'm not sure we hit the fourth one of your autism. It was the persuasion by association. Ah, yes. So this is uh, Andrew Wakefield. Yep. Andrew Wakefield is a British physician who wrote a paper claiming a link between autism and the MMR vaccine. We associate uh, MDs with, with rigorous thinking. Generally, that's a good assumption. In this case, Wakefield lost his medical license. He had to retract the paper. He admitted to fabricating data. And so the evidence that led anybody to form the opinion in the first place is now gone. But because of belief perseverance, we hold on to it. I just think it was a good example. It shows kind of how we get ourselves into uh, believing certain things and some of the, the logical fallacies. The interesting thing here, Eric, is that if somebody is saying I'm not sure I believe that there's no link. That's exactly the kind of skepticism that I think you and I are promoting. Right. Question the status quo. Question the claim. Right. That's that's the basis of critical thinking. The problem is um, critical thinking requires some systematic follow through. Okay, it's not enough just to raise the question. You have to figure out what evidence can you get that will inform the question and then evaluate the evidence in a rational way.
The world is changing faster and faster today, and there's so much uncertainty. And one of the skills that we need to deal with it is to be able to learn things quickly. And the best way I've found to do that is Blinkist. Blinkist is a unique and powerful app that works on your phone, your tablet, or your web browser. And basically what they do is give you the best key takeaways, the need-to-know information from over 3,000 nonfiction bestsellers. They can Condense them down into blinks, which you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. I've found it really helpful for me over the last few weeks to really get up to speed a lot more on racial issues in this country. They've got a ton of great books out there that you can look at, like The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi, White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo, and so many more. And now they've got a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash wolf to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off a Blinkist premium membership and up to 65% off audiobooks that are yours to keep forever. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash wolf to get 25% off a premium membership and a seven-day free trial. Blinkist.com slash wolf. The people who drive industries, entertainment, and culture shape our world every day in bold and dramatic ways. But did you ever wonder how they got there? Behind the Talent features in-depth conversations with people who identify and develop talent, the people who find the people that shape our world. Guests include big league sports scouts, rock star talent agents, and CIA officers. Uncovering the skills and challenges that unite them all is the job of host David Mead, He's an expert speaker and educator, and he brings his own curiosity and insights to each interview to expand our understanding of what it means to be a recruiter in today's world of work. Brought to you by Indeed.com, Behind the Talent is a must-listen for anyone interested in the secrets behind identifying talent and unlocking potential in individuals and organizations. Subscribe to Behind the Talent now, wherever you get your podcasts. Easy does it on the fast forward. Couple quick notes. We have a Facebook group, oneyoufeed.net slash Facebook. It's a great way to talk about the ideas you hear on the show, talk about implementing them in your life and get some support. Our online store is open, oneyoufeed.net slash shop. Uh, We got a cute baby onesie, women's t-shirts, all kinds of fun things. And our winner for the contest this week is Brandon. Brandon, I've sent you a note in Patreon, so send me an address and we will be sending you our books. We'll do it one more time this week, so this is going to be the last week for a while. If you pledge at any amount this week at oneufeed.net slash support, you'll be entered into a contest to win five free books from authors that have been on the show, and I will ship those directly to you no cost. So pledge at any level. This is the last week, oneyoufeed.net slash support, and you've got a chance to win five books. Finally, as a last thing, if you like the show, talk to somebody about the show, give us a review on iTunes. And now back to the rest of the interview with Daniel Levitin. Given where we, particularly as a society in the U.S., is headed right now, do you see this continuing to get worse? Do you think this is a anomaly, you know, just because somebody's an expert in one thing doesn't make an expert in other things. So I'm asking for your opinion here, not your deep 
study on this thing. I'm just kind of curious how you see this all playing out, this post-fact era. You know, I think a lot of it depends on President Trump. Um, so far, uh, as David Brooks said in his column uh, yesterday in The Times, and, and I have a related piece coming out in The Daily Beast this weekend, so far, Trump has, in his speech and in his actions, has led us to believe that facts are irrelevant to decision-making. And he reflexively brands as fake or untrue anything that makes him look bad, anything he right. disagrees with. And he brands the, uh, the media as liars. I think uh, the media play a very important role here, and I would include you in this. You are the media, Eric. Uh, in trying to keep uh, a civil and uh, rational conversation going about issues of importance to citizens in a free country. As long as Trump keeps sounding the clarion call for avoiding facts and information, there are a lot of people who are persuaded by him and who think that he is the person who's going to drain the swamp and fix some of the inefficiencies of government. And I think people on both sides of the political spectrum admit and agree that there are a number of inefficiencies and there's corruption and there's problems that need to be taken care of. I think we may disagree about how to fix it from one end of the spectrum to the other, yep. but I don't think we disagree there are problems. But if Trump is willing to change the conversation and say, look, we, we want to build some infrastructure, we want to build some roads, we've commissioned a study, here's where we actually need the roads according to the study, that's fact-based, and I think if he models this kind of behavior, we'll get back on track. If he doesn't, uh, we're already seeing that the judiciary is modeling that kind of behavior when the panel of three federal judges threw out his initial uh, immigration ban. I don't remember the exact quote, but it was the gist of it was, there is no evidence for the administration's claim that these seven countries uh, pose a threat to us. No evidence. Which, which elevates evidence to a position of primacy, which is, of course, the whole point of a judiciary. They should be making decisions based on evidence, not on hearsay or rumor or gut. Yep. Or anecdote or. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I yeah. just like I said, you know, on the on the political side, I'm I'm you know, I, I think I'm fairly uh, moderate and I try and stay out of it. I just am. It's the dialogue that we're having that troubles me so much or, or, or lack, lack of. of. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And look, I, I, I'm not going to come out as pro or anti Trump. I want Trump to succeed. I, I want to see the country made better by this president. Yep. Uh, if I were Trump, I would get down to business with elevating science, elevating the arts, and elevating a kind of non-belligerent cooperative discussion based on facts. Yep. Let's move from facts and critical thinking, and let's talk about your book, The Organized Mind. The basic premise is we have way more information coming at us than we could ever handle, and that despite that, there are ways that we can become more organized and and at least deal better with the the deluge of information. Is that how you say it? Deluge or deluge? I don't even know. It's one of those words that I read, but I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say out loud. I always say deluge, but um, I think I'm yours happy. sounds right. I have a dictionary here. I'm happy to look it up. <laughs> I think yours sounded more correct. So one of the big things that you talk about in that book is multitasking. And I'd like to talk about uh, multitasking a little bit and what's wrong with multitasking and, and what is the effect that that has on us? It seems to be something, and I'm asking 
sort of from my own personal life as somebody who seems to engage in it more than I would like, even though I know that it's probably not the best idea. I'm just, I'm curious to, to hear more about it from you. Let's say what multitasking is not. Multitasking is not playing a musical instrument while you're reading music and listening to the other musicians around you. Right. Multitasking is not driving and listening to the radio at the same time, really. Right. Multitasking is attempting to do a bunch of things at the same time that compete for your attentional resources with one another. And the problem with it is that it doesn't actually exist. It's an illusion. So if you think that you can text and drive at the same time, or that you can be talking to somebody on the phone and doing your email at the same time, there's a lot of evidence that you can't. What's happening is that your attentional system rapidly shifts from one thing to the next. So you do one thing for a couple of seconds, and then another, and then another, and then another, and then you come back around to the first one. You're fractionating your attention into itty-bitty parts and pieces, not really devoting full attention to anything. And the danger here is that we find it very titillating and exciting to do this, all this kind of switching gives us a little bit of a high and we don't want to let go of it. There's you know, ample evidence to your detriment. People think when they're working and they're attempting to multitask, they're getting more done. But studies show they're not. They're getting less done. Yep. Unitaskers, people who will immerse themselves in one thing, get more done and the quality of their work is rated as higher. The other thing that I thought was interesting was you talk about how multitasking has been found to increase cortisol levels. You've also said elsewhere, and I mean, not just you, but a lot of people have talked about how raised levels of cortisol actually stops us from thinking clearly and thinking well. It, it, it gets in the way. Cortisol is an interesting uh, hormone. So one of its primary missions is to help prepare you for a fight or flight response. And it begins a cascade of several things, such as raising your heart rate, your respiration rate. You know, imagine being confronted by a tiger. Uh, you've got a couple of choices. You're either going to fight it or you're going to run. And you don't have a lot of time to make a decision. And there are a bunch of things that are sapping your bodily resources that aren't going to matter if you don't solve this problem. Among them are your libido. You, you, you don't need to have you know, sexual drive at this moment. <laughs> Hopefully not. You don't need to be digesting your food because you know, that takes up a lot of resources. Uh, and you don't need to be weighing different options in a kind of systematic way. You have to move quickly. So those three kinds of things get put on hold. Your libido, your digestion, your immune system. Uh, is a fourth one, uh, and, and, and systematic thought, so that you can act quickly. The problem is that it's not just tigers that release cortisol now. It's the stress of multitasking. It's being yelled at by your boss, being cut off or given the finger by somebody in traffic. And you've got no way to work off the cortisol. It's not like you can run you know, for a mile up a hill to get away from you know, your, your, your boss or, or something like that. So the toxic effects of it linger. Yeah. One of the other things you talked about, you say that neuroscientists have discovered that unproductivity and loss of drive can result from decision overload. And the thing about multitasking for me, and I know decision overload and multitasking are, are different things, but for me, the thing with multitasking that I get is that I feel like it really wears me out and it takes an emotional toll on me in a way that I can't quite 
put my words on it. By multitask, I mainly mean I'm looking at my email and then I remember, oh, I should check Twitter and then I got to get something on my calendar and then I've got to, you know, uh, uh, several hours of that. And I feel very worn out or just I can't quite find the right word for it, but it takes an it takes an emotional toll. Well, I know what you mean. And I guess I, I think of this not as multitasking narrowly defined, but multitasking broadly defined. And what you're really doing is rapid task switching which requires that you redirect your attentional focus to one thing and then another and then another and then another. And usually each of those things requires some decision making. And that's where this concept you raised of decision fatigue comes in. So let's just take email, for example. Suppose you're working on something. Maybe you're working on your weekly budget or you're writing a letter to your grandma or you're doing a report for work. And your email program's open because who knows, something urgent could come up and you hear that ping. So right away, you've got to make a decision. Do I look at my email or not? Then once you look at it, you have to decide, am I going to deal with this now or later? Uh, is it something that I can forward that somebody else can deal with? Uh, is it spam? Uh, do I need to do a little bit of research in order to answer this question? That's five decisions right there. Each decision comes with a metabolic cost. It depletes glucose in our brains that is required to keep neurons you know, functioning properly. So after an hour or two of this kind of rapid decision-making, um, you've literally depleted your neural resources. And I think what you're describing is what many of us feel after a couple hours in the morning of work, just depleted and worn out. Fortunately, the cure is to take a break. And I don't mean a break where you check Facebook or you check, uh, you know, you know, your newsfeed. I mean a break where you allow your mind to reset itself, what I call the mind wandering mode, by walking in nature, exercising, looking at uh, art, listening to music, taking a little nap, closing your eyes, just something restorative like that. It effectively hits the reset button in your brain and restores the depleted chemicals. The idea of doing work in focused uh, bursts, you know, doing, um, I think I've heard people refer to it as, as pulsing or, but of, you know, setting a timer for 20 minutes and only doing one thing, turning off email. I, the amount that I get done when I do that is just staggering in comparison to the amount I normally get done when I'm kind of just doing that sitting at my desk working on whatever comes up. And I just notice things like I flip over to my calendar and then I don't remember why I'm even in my calendar. There was something that made me want to go there. And that's what happens when I'm in that check email, do calendar, and you know, all check my feed, all that stuff. I just more and more as time goes on, am, am recognizing the, the challenges that cause. And I elsewhere in the book, I think you said something like, you know, make no mistake, Facebook and all those things are a neural addiction. Yeah, I, I believe they are. And, you know, in writing the Organized Mind, I had the opportunity to uh, debrief and interview and shadow some people who are really productive. Nobel Prize winners, great artists, um, CEOs of some big corporations, uh, members of the Obama White House. I mean, you know, highly productive, efficient people. And the trend there, the pattern that I observed was that they turn off the internet for a couple hours at a time and focus. Yep. And if somebody needs to reach them, they've got to get them some other way. Yep. Uh, and, you know, they're all different techniques that we can talk about for, okay, well, I, I have to be reachable. Well, okay, well, but, but manage it, right? 
don't allow just everybody to interrupt you all the time. Yep. Manage it by having a second cell phone or a second email account or you know something like that. Set up a white list for your email or a, you know on the iPhone you can set up a list of people that get through the do not disturb. That's right. Yep, yep. So, you know, there are all these little things you can do. I love Perfect Bars. I've talked about them before on here, how much I love them, how many of them I've eaten, which is an extraordinary number. But there's not just Perfect Bars. The company, Perfect Snacks, make a variety of products like protein bars, peanut butter cups, and kids snack bars. And they're all made with freshly ground nut butter, organic honey, and 20 organic superfoods. You're sure to find something that you'll love. Of course, my favorite is the standard Perfect Bar dark chocolate, chip peanut butter, although their peanut butter cups are amazing too, and you keep them in the fridge and so they're cold. If you're not already convinced, they're also non-GMO, project verified, they're gluten-free, they're soy-free, they're kosher, and they're low GI, and they are delicious. So right now, Perfect Snacks is offering 15% off your online order. Just go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf. Shop their refrigerated snacks at perfectsnacks.com slash wolf today to get 15% off your order. We want you to be prepared for snack time. So go to perfectsnacks.com slash wolf to stock up and save 15%. So let's turn our attention to music. You were a uh, engineer, a producer. You played music. I'm sure you still do play music. And um, you wrote a book called This Is Your Brain on Music, really exploring kind of what happens in our brain as we listen to and make music and listeners on the show know, you know, Chris and I are both musicians. All the music breaks in the show are always something we've written. So big passion of mine. I loved the book and I have to start though. There's so much to get into and we don't have a lot of time, but I have to start with at one point you were meeting with somebody who didn't really understand rock and roll. I can't remember the gentleman's name, but John R. Pierce, the inventor of satellite communication. There you go. Lover of music, didn't understand rock and roll. And you went to dinner and you brought with him six songs. And so I'm going to read the six that you brought. And then you did say oh, that boy, I get a lot of mail about this because people are oh, mad. No. I, are they? Do you? Is this a source yeah. of controversy? <laughs> I, I'm happy to. I, I, before you read the list, I, I want to say I'm not purporting that this is the perfect list of the six songs that explain rock and roll. It's the best I could come up with on short yep, notice. Yep. And you said even when you wrote this book, which was a long I mean, how long has it been? 10, 15 years, this book? 12 years since yeah. I wrote it, yeah. So, you know, you said all are great songs, but even now I'd like to make some adjustments. So I'm just going to yeah. read the list and then ask you yeah. for a couple more you might add to that list if you were to do it again. Ah, very nice. Thank you. All right. Me. So first was uh, Long Tall Sally by Little Richard, Roll Over Beethoven by The Beatles, All Along the Watchtower by Jimi Hendrix, Wonderful Tonight by Eric Clapton, Little Red Corvette by Prince, and Anarchy in the UK by The Sex Pistols. So that was the list 
15 years ago or so. What, what are some things you'd add to that list today, you know, that, that are, you know, are rock songs that, that you really either love or think are important? This is a, uh, what do you love question more than a, you know. I was trying to be systematic and scholarly about it. And um, I felt that I, I wanted to define rock and roll broadly as the kind of popular music I listened to which pretty much spans 1940s to the present. And I thought, well, you know, you got to have something to represent the one of the architects of rock and roll, you know, like Little Richard or yeah. Chuck Berry or the Beatles. I mean, there are all these, these, these you know, touchstones you want to get. Um, the Beatles were great writers, but they were also a great band. Uh, having them do Roll Over Beethoven as a way to get Chuck Berry and the Beatles <laughs> in one choice, you know, it was complicated and wonderful tonight was an attempt to try and capture the soft rock of the 70s mm-hmm. you know that included the carpenters and uh james brown james taylor right and i mean it could have been any of them i knew that john pierce had worked on in developing the uh vacuum tube and so i wanted to also the other constraint is that I wanted him to be able to experience a range of different guitar tones. Yeah. So he could see what his invention had wrought. <laughs> I think today I would add Hallelujah, the Leonard Cohen song. Um, I mean, it's not rock and roll, but it's popular music. Uh, and I would add it in probably in the version by Jeff Buckley or by Rufus Wainwright. I mean, there are a lot of possibilities there. Um, It's been covered so much. Certainly, I would add something that's from hip hop. Um, And I'm not sure what, but I would probably go back to the basics like Houdini or Sir Mix-A-Lot or, (laughs) you know, LL Cool J, um, you know, just in terms of the origin story. Uh, I also like Naz and Ludacris. So, I mean, that that's um, hip hop is dead would be an interesting choice. You might want to get some Moby in there. I was sick that I wasn't able to include Stevie Wonder or Led Zeppelin. Yeah. Yeah. Those are. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's preposterous to try and think of six songs to represent. What, what would, would you add, Eric? Oh, man, boy, that's a. Well, I love the Sex Pistols choice. Um, I really like the Prince choice, too. I think that's a great one. Um, I think I probably would have to get the Rolling Stones in there somehow. Yeah, Little um, Red Rooster. Yeah, something like that. Or the one that you reference in the book a lot, you know, Honky Tonk Woman. This is a discussion we could we could do for hours, so um, we'll leave it there. But I just found it fascinating to... Well, I didn't find it fascinating. What I found it, it was fun. To, to read the list and, and to think about it. Um, I want to talk a little bit about music and the role it can have in our brains and in um, helping us to live better lives. You, you say that uh, current neuropsychological theories associate positive mood and effect with increased dopamine levels. Music is clearly a means for improving people's moods because it, music is acting on the dopamine system. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe anything else that you would add since you wrote the book then about what we've learned about how music can help us with mood regulation? Well, 
already so many of us use music to regulate our mood in the way we use drugs uh, like caffeine and alcohol. We've done surveys of thousands of people uh, talking about how they use music. And it's a typical thing is that people use a certain kind of music to help them get going in the morning, another mm -hmm. kind of music to relax before bed. If they have a fight with someone close to them, there's a music that they know will you know, soothe them and comfort them. Um, these different uses of music are what I explored in my second book, The World in Six Songs, um, Music as Medicine. I do want to be fair here and say that I think that in general, the arts confer all these benefits. It's not just music. Uh, it, I happen to study music, but there's uh, you know, engagement with literature and theater, with painting, dance. Depending on which art forms speak to you, these right. things can all improve your mood. I think the arts give us a, a broader perspective on the world than we get through, say, journalism. They help to break down our resistance and our barriers to understanding other human beings because they reach us emotionally. Right. They have the ability to go a little bit below the, the conscious, hypercritical mind. That's right. And I think that the real power of the arts is to uh, recontextualize reality for us, to help us see things in a different way. And being able to exercise that part of your brain, being, you know, the ability to see things in a different way, is of course crucial to problem solving. Whether you're talking about solving a personal problem or making a decision about a relationship or where to invest your money, or whether you're trying to get involved in politics, how are we gonna make the world a better place? What can we do about climate change? What can we do about the unequal distribution of wealth and, and hunger and poverty? How can we stop aggression across countries? These are problems that require creativity to solve. If they were easy to solve, they'd have been solved already. And I think the arts play a fundamentally important role in that. I agree. You say that as listeners, there is every reason to believe that some of our brain states will match those of the musicians we are listening to. So... A lot of people, when they feel sad, right, they reach towards sad music and there's a there's a comfort in that. Is there anything that shows that listening to, say, happy music makes you happier? I'm just interested in what what kind of things we're seeing there, because normally my reaction is I feel down at least certainly a lot of my life. I would go to the sad music. I found myself as I've gotten older and maybe romanticize uh, feeling crappy less than maybe I did when I was younger. I move towards more positive things now as a way to lift myself out of that. Well, you know, I think that the terms happy and sad are um, broad and there are a lot of different ways to be happy and things to be happy about. There are a lot of different neural signatures to them. And I think it's important to understand that variability. In some sad states, happy music will soothe and comfort you. And in other sad states, sad music will. Yeah. In a lot of cases, when you're feeling sad, it's because you feel in some way fundamentally misunderstood. Mm -hmm. But the right sad song, you go, oh, yeah, that person understands me. And I have somebody to sit on the edge of the cliff with. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yep. Yep. I was curious if you know who are some of the thought leaders in using music for therapeutic purposes. Like who might I look to, you know, that that are real experts in this space or just still doing research today around music and emotion. Your lab, I think, just released a, a paper. So you're still you still got your hand in. I sure hope so. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's my day job. 
I would say music and emotion is different than music therapy. That's true. So, yep, yep. On the music therapy front, there's Suzanne Hanzer at at uh, Berkeley College of Music. There's Ed Roth at Western Michigan State University. Michael Tott in Colorado, T H A U T. Um, Connie Tomeno in New York. On the music and emotion front, this is a more scholarly endeavor that's really about basic research, usually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the leaders in that field. Uh, include William Ford Thompson at Macquarie University in uh, Australia. My own lab, I don't know if we're at the forefront of it, but uh, we've published several studies on music and emotion, along with my students. And there is um, Patrick Uslin, J-U-S-L-I-N, another leader in that field. And so you guys had a recent paper that was uh, published in Nature. What was the most recent paper that you guys did? I think it was a paper that came out a week ago uh, in the Nature Journal called Scientific Reports. And in that one, we showed this did have to do with music and emotion. My doctoral student, Adil Malik, a postdoc named Mona Lisa Chanda, and I um, administered a drug to people that temporarily blocked one of the neurochemicals that we know is associated uh, in the brain with pleasurable experiences such as taking drugs mm-hmm. uh, or having an orgasm. And um, we were curious to know if that drug also served the music system. So if people take a pill, it's either the, the, op- the opioid blocker mm-hmm. or it's neutral, inert, and they don't know it. And they listened to music, and then we had a number of ways of measuring whether they were experiencing normal musical pleasure or not. And um, it turns out that when they took the drug, they did not experience musical pleasure, which um, was the first demonstration uh, that I know of uh, that opioids, the brain's own endogenous opioids, in particular the mu opioids, for those of you who are neurochemists, Uh, are responsible or at least implicated in musical pleasure, just like food pleasure, sex pleasure, and and drug pleasure. So that that old saying about sex, drugs, and rock and roll going together... Is true. Yep, yep. At a chemical level. Well, Dan, thanks so much for for taking the time to come on. Um, Like I said, I could probably talk about several of these subjects for for a long, long time, but I really enjoyed your books. Thank you so much for coming on. It was it was a pleasure to have you. Thanks for having me on. It was really great to talk to you. Bye. Bye. If what you just heard was helpful to you, please consider making a donation to the One You Feed podcast. Head over to oneyoufeed.net slash support.